Good morning. Good to see you all. You can join me in opening your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12. And if you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one under some seats nearby. And if you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take that one home with you. We're taking several weeks to look at really the high point of the Bible's story. And so last week we saw that God created the world as an expression of his goodness. I shared that phrase I love from one of these uh, Puritan pastors from the 1600s, Richard Sibbs, which said that he said that God has a spreading goodness. And so we see that reflected in creation. Did you see the sun rise this morning? Were you up early enough? It's beautiful. This morning was beautiful. And it's an expression of God's goodness in creation that's still here, even though, as we also saw last week, uh, Adam and Eve, the first humans, rejected God's rule and word, and now the whole world is broken. Relationships, God and humanity is broken. Our relationships with one another are broken. And creation itself feels like it's against us so often. And so God sent Adam and Eve out of the garden, but he sent them out of the garden with a promise that a savior would come to crush the head of the serpent who is Satan. So evil, Satan will be defeated, and it's a signal that God will restore all that was lost. He'll bring back the blessings that he gave in the goodness of Eden. And so the question we were left with last week then is how will God unfold this promise? How will he bring us back to himself? How will he restore for us all that we've lost? How will he rescue us? Now, if anyone is familiar with Christianity, you know the answer must have something to do with Jesus, right? But if you look at your Bible, there is a lot of space between that promise and the coming of Jesus, isn't there? We have a whole Old Testament there. Why is that there? Well, the Old Testament shows us that God is unfolding a story. He's preparing us to understand who Jesus is and the salvation that he would bring. And so this morning, we're going to look at one event in the Old Testament. And this is one event that helps us understand the salvation that would later come through Jesus more than any other event. So we're going to look at the Exodus, when God brought Israel out of Egypt. Israel, his people, were enslaved in Egypt, and he brought them out. The Exodus is, I think we could say, the most important event in the Old Testament, at least one of them. And here's why. Because the Exodus, this event, created a pattern that shows us how God rescues us. This was a real historic event, but it was also um, accomplished in order to symbolize to picture, to provide a pattern ahead of time for us to understand what Jesus would do in bringing a, a, a salvation event that is even greater than the Exodus. Like it, but greater. So it pictures for us how Jesus rescues us. So here's what the Exodus shows us. It gives us the clearest picture of how God will bring us, humanity, back to the goodness of Eden that we lost. That we looked at last week. It shows us that we all need to be rescued, and it shows us God's wisdom and love to do that for us. So 
So why don't we pray together before we consider this? Father, we thank you for your great mercy. We thank you for your wisdom in unfolding history as a beautiful story, one that no human could design. We thank you for revealing it to us in the Bible. We thank you for how this story shows us who you are and what you're like, your power, your wisdom, your goodness, and your deep heart of mercy and love for sinners like us. So we pray that in considering your story and this great event that you accomplished, we pray that you would help us to understand who you are and that we would draw near to you by the Spirit and be transformed. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to do something a little bit different this morning. We usually look at a paragraph or a chapter of the Bible. This morning we're going to look at a span of about a dozen or so chapters, and we're just going to look at a few high points in this section, Exodus 12 through 25. And what we're going to see here is four images that are at the heart of the Exodus. The four images are the lamb, the sea, the mountain, and the tent. So God has Israel sacrifice a lamb, and then he leads them through the sea. He brings them to a mountain, and then he has them build a tent. And these four images teach us about what it means and how God brings us back to himself. So they're spread across this section. Kids, I know some of you uh, draw or write what you hear. And so if you draw pictures of what you hear this morning, I would love to see what you draw afterwards. So if you wouldn't mind showing me, I'd love to see that. So first, the lamb. God raised up Moses to deliver Israel from their slavery in Egypt, but Pharaoh, Egypt's king, refused to let them go. So God judged the Egyptians with a series of terrible plagues, and Pharaoh still refused to let Israel go. And so we have a final plague on one night, the firstborn sons of all the homes in Egypt would die. But God made a plan for Israel. He'd have them take refuge under the blood of a lamb. So let's read the first seven verses of chapter 12 here together. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. This is just, I have to pause here. The Lord is resetting their calendars right now. This shows how big this moment is. This is day one, a new beginning for the people of Israel on this night. And they're going to celebrate this event on that new year every year after. Verse 3, tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts, and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat. So the Lord is setting up a 
yearly remembrance event ceremony institution for them to celebrate this night. And on this night, what they do is they, each household takes a lamb and sacrifices it and takes the blood and puts it over the doorpost of the house. Verse 12 shows us why. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, God says, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Verse 13, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. It's a terrifying evening. God's going to bring this terrible judgment over Egypt here, the death of every firstborn son. And when he does this, he will pass over the houses that have blood, the blood of the lamb spread over the doorposts. The blood shows that a death has already happened in that house. So no death is needed. In other words, the lamb is sacrificed in place of the firstborn who represents the family. So that lamb is, is dying in place of that family giving up. Um, the son, and so the lamb was a substitute. The lamb dies, so the family is spared. Now here's the question that I think the Israelites might be asking. Why do they need to do this? And here's why I think they may be asking that, because as we read the previous chapters leading up to this, there were nine other plagues. And those plagues were directed at the Egyptians, Pharaoh and his servants, and God just spared Israel because they were Israel. They were his people. They would have expected God then to say something like tonight, the firstborn sons of the Egyptian families will die, but I will bring you out. So just wait. No need to do anything. But this final plague will come upon Egyptian homes and Israelite homes alike. If no lambs are given in sacrifice, Every home, Israelite included, Moses' home included, will have a death. What a striking, alarming evening for Israel. So what does that teach us about Israel, God's own people, and their situation before God? Well, it shows that they too are under God's judgment. They do not get an automatic pass. Up until this point, Israel's main problem was Pharaoh. This night they realize that this merciful God that they have come to know, they also have a problem with him because of their sin. They are the problem. They have a problem with their sin and the judgment that they deserve for their idolatry and rebellion against the Lord. So this Passover night is really um, redefining their problem for them. It's helping them come to terms with the, the reality of their own sin and the justice of God in bringing judgment against sinners. But God also loves them deeply. And so even though his justice does demand their death, his mercy creates a way for forgiveness, which is the wonder of this story. They can take refuge in the blood of a lamb. 
the lamb can die as a sacrifice, a substitute for them. The lamb will die so they can live, be untouched, untouched by God's judgment. So from this point on, God says that they will celebrate this Passover night. Their calendars are oriented to this night because it's their new beginning. It's their new life. And they're going to celebrate this every year to remember the rescue. Now, what does this show us in light of the big story of the Bible? That's what we're doing in this series, uh, these, these weeks together. Well, it shows us that Israel's problem is the same problem that Adam and Eve had. And it's the same problem that you and I have. And it's the same problem that every human being, other than Jesus, has had. We have rebelled, we've broken God's commands, we've rejected his heart, and we deserve death. The wages of sin is death. For Adam and Eve, in the day you eat it, you shall surely die, the Lord said. And the same goes for us. We're all then under God's judgment. But this also shows us that God's solution for Israel is a picture of his solution for all of us. God's love, we see here, is too great to allow for his judgment to be the only word. He says, yes, you deserve judgment, but I will provide a lamb for you. So when the judgment comes, I will pass over you. You do not get judgment, you get my smile, and I'll bring you out. So when Jesus came, John the Baptist pointed him out and said, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus, you know, it's really striking. This just stood out to me recently, uh, reading through the Gospels, and how Jesus planned when he would enter Jerusalem to die. And he planned it to happen during the Passover feast so that he would give his life while the lambs were giving theirs because he is the true lamb. He's the one who's come to do what the animals actually could never do anyway. And so Peter, who was there uh, on that evening with Jesus before the crucifixion and met him in the resurrection, he then would later write to Christians and say this in 1 Peter 1.19. It says, we were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. If you are not a Christian yet, this is what it means to become one. You are invited to come out from under God's judgment and take refuge under the blood of Jesus and be spared uh, just like those families were. That's the first image of salvation, the lamb. The second image is the sea. This is verse four, or chapter 14 now. So Israel that night is led out of Egypt, but Pharaoh and his army still go after them, still pursue them. And so when Israel comes to the edge of the Red Sea, they feel trapped. Look at verse 10 with me of chapter 14. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Now, Israel's not crying out in faith here. Listen to what they said to Moses in verse 12. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Which is a reminder sprinkled through almost every chapter of Exodus that Israel is saved not because of their virtue, but because of God's power and his grace. 
And this story is also about God accomplishing a victory. Did you hear what Moses said God would do for them? In verse 14, he says, the Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. This is actually a battle story. Uh, the emphasis of the story is actually not on the parting of the sea, uh, though that's obviously a part, big part of this. The emphasis of the story is on this battle that happens and the Lord judging uh, the Egyptian army here. This is a, a conflict here being played out. And so you can see in verse 25, for instance, the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. And then Israel passes through, the Lord fights for Israel, and the, uh, overthrows the Egyptians in the sea, and then Israel sings a song in the next chapter. Listen to their summary right at the beginning in chapter 15, verse 1. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and the rider he's thrown into the sea. In verse 3, the Lord is a man of war. So here's what this shows us again with each of these. Let's just step back and think, what does this show us in the big picture of the Bible, the story? Do you remember the promise from last week, if you were here, from Genesis 3.15? This is the master promise of the Bible. God leads Israel, uh, or Adam and Eve out of the garden, but he sends them out with a promise that they've overheard as God speaks to Satan. It's in the form of a serpent. And God says there will be a conflict between the serpent and his offspring and Eve's offspring, who, as we follow that offspring line through the book of Genesis and into Israel, become Israel. So there's going to be a conflict between Satan and Israel, and Satan's offspring and God's people. And so we see that played out in this story of the Exodus, where Pharaoh, I don't know if you know this, but Pharaoh, the Pharaohs back then would have a big serpent on their forehead. Um, and Pharaoh is described in this book as a, a Satan-like um, tyrant. And he's oppressing Israel with slavery, opposing God's plans, opposing God's people. And so God leads them into the sea, and he conquers them. And that's how he sets Israel free from their slavery. That is a picture of what God would then do one day for us. It shows us that God brings salvation by conquering Satan and setting us free. For Israel, that was expressed in Pharaoh and God conquering Pharaoh in Egypt. But that's just a little picture of the greater salvation that has already begun through Jesus. Colossians 2.15 says that through the cross and resurrection, God disarmed the rulers and authorities. I think he's speaking of spiritual rulers and authorities, Satan and his army and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ, right? He triumphs over Pharaoh, and he triumphs over Satan through the cross and resurrection. So we've seen the lamb, we've seen the sea, and now the third image is the mountain. Chapter 19, God brings them through the sea, and he leads them to the mountain, Mount Sinai. So the lamb and the sea, if we're thinking about salvation here, the lamb and the sea show us what... God saves his people from. He saves them from death, his judgment, and slavery. Now at the mountain, he shows us what we're redeemed for. God delivers his people so that they can flourish as human beings again. So 
Last week, we saw Adam and Eve in the garden, and God said he made humanity in his own image, this noble purpose and dignity. And he, he calls them to have dominion and rule the world and care for the world, reflecting God's good care and rule over the world. And we saw that Adam and Eve are really like um, royalty and priests, like king and queen and priests there to rule the world and to worship God in all of life. And that commission is passed on to all of humanity. That's, that's what we're made to do, to reflect God's rule in the world and to worship him. We've all failed to do this. Um, we've failed to rule the well, rule world well. We fail to even rule our own hearts well. We ruin things that we touch, and we do not worship God um, in all of life. And so this is the human condition. And at the mountain, God is really rescuing Israel to, to take on this calling again. So look at 19, verses 4 to 6. You yourselves, God said, have seen, God said, have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings. What an image. And brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So do you see those two ideas here? They are a kingdom and a priesthood. Royalty and priestly worship. They're to rule and worship. That was the purpose of God given to humanity at creation. And now God is saying to Israel, I have delivered you. You're no longer enslaved. And I'm calling you now to be a kingdom of priests, to reflect my image again. And so if you just glance at the next chapter, Exodus 20, it's the Ten Commandments. And one of the reasons, if you just think, why did God give Israel the law? What are the Ten Commandments all about? Well, one of the answers to that question is because it shows them how to reflect God's character, how to image God in the world. The heart of the law is, is to love God and love your neighbor, right? It's about love, loving God, loving your neighbor. God is love. And so he gives them this law to say, to show them, this is what it looks like to love me and love others. This is how you image me. This is how you reflect me as you rule the world and worship in all of life. So that's the lesson on the mountain. Salvation is not just what we're saved from, not just coming out of slavery, not just coming out from under death. It's also about what we're saved to, which is our, our purpose as human beings, to flourish in the world reflecting God's character by ruling and worshiping and all of life with this dignified, noble calling to be a kingdom of priests. Now, the final image, the tent. God saves them by the blood of the lamb through the sea to the mountain, and then on the mountain, he tells them to make a tent. That's very interesting. Uh, what he's doing is he's restoring his presence to them. So he gives them instructions for building a tent. We call that the tabernacle. This is almost the entire second half of the book of Exodus. If you read through Exodus 25 through 40, most of it may seem boring and strange to you. He's giving lots of details about what this tent, this tabernacle, is to be like. It's a portable tent. But this may be, I think, uh, the best part of the book of Exodus. Do you know what the tent is? What this tabernacle is? It is a mini symbolic Eden. 
That's what the tent is. Do you, uh, I don't know if they still do this in school. Kids, do you still have to make a diorama box thing? Maybe. I, did anyone have to do that in the past? You know what I'm talking about? So you, I had to make a shoe box, and it was like a theater scene. Take a little box, and you, you make a scene there. It's like you set a stage, and you can do a forest, you can do a park, um, any number of things. So it's a little box. That's kind of what the tent, the tabernacle was. It was a little bit bigger than a shoe box. It's a, a big tent, but it's a box, essentially, that inside, when you look in there, it's a symbolic scene of Eden. That's what the tabernacle is doing there. So if you walk in there, you would see it filled with the beauty, uh, symbolic beauty of Eden. So you'd see the curtains colored like the beautiful sky, uh, somewhat like we saw the sun rise this morning um, with this blue and scarlet all over there and these flying creatures in there. And then you'd see a tree, a lampstand. It looks like the tree, reminding us of the tree of life in Eden. And you'd see this table with bread, I think symbolizing this, this meal with the Lord. Adam and Eve could feast in God's presence in Eden. And then you, you walk into the most holy place where God's presence is, and it's guarded by these two cherubim, reminding us of the guards that were put outside of the Garden of Eden, blocking the way to God's presence. So, so here's Eden again, and then God is saying, I'm going to be with you. And then a priest, a high priest can enter once a year into that most holy place, representing the people of Israel. A symbolic way of saying, humanity, my people, can come back in. Adam, he's like a new Adam or new humanity, coming back in to God's presence to dwell with him. This is the, what we were made for. And that's what's being pictured in this tent. But it's symbolic. So it's wonderful and it is not sufficient. But what is the point? The end point of the Exodus salvation, the goal to which it's heading, is for God's people to be brought back to him in an Edenic wonder world. That's what we were made for. And that's what's being pictured here in the story. Look at Exodus 25, verse 8. Right at the beginning of the instructions for the tent, it's repeated through this. This is the purpose of the tabernacle. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And then at the end of the book of Exodus, this tabernacle is filled with a cloud of his glory, his uh, special presence. And then this priest can enter in like a symbol of humanity re-entering into God's presence. But it's just a symbol. It's not yet the renewed creation because only a priest can enter only once a year, and that's it. So this was a picture to teach Israel and everyone who reads it about the whole point of everything. The goal of God's rescue, the goal of salvation is for God to dwell with his people in a new Eden forever. And when we trust in Jesus, we begin to experience that now. Jesus referred to himself as the temple. Destroy this temple, I'll raise it up in three days. He then pours out his spirit after he's risen from the dead upon his church, and we are throughout the New Testament called his temple right now. As you trust in Jesus, you, you have the Spirit's presence, and we have that together right now. We are experiencing 
uh, what that tent was symbolizing. Right now, God himself, by his Holy Spirit, is here. Uh, And this is an anticipation of when Jesus returns, we'll see him face to face. And this whole world will be renewed to be a wonderland again. Take the masks off. I don't mean that now. (laughs) When Jesus returns, COVID's gone. Cancer's gone. No more death. Nothing to cry about. God's presence with us. That's what the tent is about. So this is the Exodus story. That's the gospel of the Old Testament. The gospel story of the Old Testament. God said, reset your calendars. It's fitting that we've reset our calendars according to about the time when Jesus came. Um, reset your calendars because a new beginning is here. And God did that as a teaching tool to prepare us for this greater story that's come through Jesus. So let's just step back a couple of reflections and then we'll close and move to those uh, leadership updates we mentioned are coming. So four images here. All four images are about restoring what we lost in Eden. So think back to Eden. What does humanity need? What do we need? If you were born next and you're there and you're thinking 20 years ago, Adam and Eve were in there, how do we get back? Because this place is really hard. How do you get back? What do we need? There's four things you need, among other things. One, you need a sacrifice. You need something like a lamb that will die in your place because you're under God's judgment of death, eternal death. So you need forgiveness. You need a substitute. You also need a victory because you have an enemy. This serpent who came in and deceived is still around and he's at work. So you need God to fulfill the promise to crush his head and set you free from the slavery that's in your own heart because you just can't stop sinning even though in some part of your heart you would like to. You're enslaved. We feel it. You also then need uh, what the mountain promises. You need to be restored to reflect God's image, his goodness, his character in the world, and rule and subdue and worship him in all of life. And you also need to get back into Eden. You need this world to be restored, but even better, the whole earth flourishing, and you need the best part of this. Without which, who even really cares? You need God present with you. And with Israel's exodus, God is providing a picture of all of that. And he does it to teach us just how great, just how incredible it will be when Jesus would come. So when we think of Jesus coming and dying and rising, this is what he was doing for us. This is, it's a big story And God was preparing us to wonder at it. And so he accomplished the greatest exodus and provides for all our needs because he is our lamb. Out of his own heart of mercy, he sees our misery and he comes. And Jesus is our lamb. And Jesus crushed the head of Satan on the cross and he will do it finally and fully when he returns. Mysteriously, as the end of Romans says, through us, his church as well. Um, and he restores us to our calling to flourish, and he is going to be with us forever. So 
This week, as you might become in some moment depressingly aware of your sin, remember you have a lamb that you're taking refuge under. And as you feel burdened by uh, a sin that still feels like it grips your heart, remember that the power of sin has been broken in your life if you're trusting in Jesus. And the authority of Satan is not an authority over you. He has lost any power over you. And Jesus will finish it one day. And if you feel aimless and purposeless in life, even as a Christian, you think, well, I'm forgiven, but what's, what am I doing here? You have been restored to this noble calling to reflect God's character in the world and rule and worship. And you do that as you unload the dishwasher and give a word of kindness and encouragement to someone in the store and that's how you image him and if you feel lonely this week remember that god has already restored his presence to you uh, and a new creation is coming as you look at the headlines and they begin to depress you it only takes one headline these days right uh remember where the story is going uh, the exodus has been accomplished and god will make good on his promise let's pray together Our Father, we thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you not, not only for doing these things, but for being so kind this morning to reveal yourself through your word and by your spirit, helping us understand and respond. So thank you that you've done everything. And we, as the Israelites at the edge of that sea, just stand and watch. And so we want to trust you. And so we pray that you would kindle in our hearts such a joy and a relief and a gratefulness that as we talk to one another in the next hour, as we lay our head down in bed tonight, as we are reminded of something we're frustrated about tomorrow, that, that the, the thankfulness and the gratefulness we have for all of this would, would fill our hearts to change us so that we could even reflect your character to the world around us. It is in Jesus' name. Amen.